When I was a kid, any time you went into someone's house, on the bookshelf you'd see the blue spine of Oscar and Lucinda. A generation later, the same thing was true of true history of the Kelly gang. Peter Carey is this towering figure. He's one of a tiny category of authors who's won the Booker Prize twice. Every bookshop stocks him, everybody knows his name, and yet I have this theory that Peter Carey is the most owned, least read literary writer in the Australian firmament. And I think he's less read than he ought to be. His work is meaningful and pleasurable in complicated and underestimated ways. His early short stories have this delightfully bonkers energy. His novels are dark and twisted and playful. They're not the straight historical fiction I think so many people expect from his sepia-toned covers. I often want to share his work, and so I was delighted when my friend Sarah Krasnerstein started reading and loving him too, knowing I'd get to talk to her all about it. And that is what I'm going to do today. From Schwartz Media, I'm Michael Williams with Read This, a show about the books we love and the stories behind them. Sarah Krasnerstein is a writer and journalist, probably best known for her incredible book, The Trauma Cleaner. Her most recent work is the Ode to Peter Carey that she's written for the Writers on Writers series. Thank you for having me, Michael Williams. So maybe tell me about reading True History of the Kelly Gang for the first time. So it was probably early 2020 when we were um, making use of the books we had. And True History had been on my shelf for 20 years, unread. Uh, I had opened it enough to see the map at the beginning. And I don't know what it was. I just gave it a go. Are you a map at the beginning person normally? Or was that straight away off-putting as soon as you saw the map? It's such a writer's question. That's a beautiful question. I am nothing at the beginning except for what the author is telling me in words. So if it's even like the author's kind of prologue, I am more fixated on the first chapter. So yeah, in, in any kind of um, introductory material, I normally skim over. But that map kind of snagged me because it was hand-drawn, I think, and strange. Are you a big reader of Australian literary fiction? You know, is that something that you seek out or is it not really your genre? So now I am. Um, But for the longest time, uh, I wasn't. And I know that I sound the way that I sound, but I have lived here most of the time since 1994. I've read a lot of Australian literature But the fiction side was something that I kind of felt a little alienated from for most of that time. And I think kind of around the time period in which I started reading Carrie, uh, something had shifted and I felt much more at home here. And I felt like those books, too, were speaking to me. So... I like that you've just confessed your accent is entirely an affectation. That's um, that's an important thing to reveal. I practice with a series of tapes. Yeah, no, I can I can tell. That's uh, the, the deep corruption of it. I'm, I'm interested in that idea that part of being more open to it was feeling at home here. Mm. And I think one of the things that's so lovely about the way you write about Kerry is you write about that idea of belonging and feeling at home or not feeling at home, Mm. outsiders and insiders. Um, And you reflect that if you're reading about Melbourne, you'd read Helen Garner. If you're reading about Australia, you would read Alexis Wright. 
What was it that you found off-putting about the idea of Carrie so, at that point? Yeah, I mean, no offense uh, to you or anyone listening, but I felt like part of me assumed I had had him pegged as, you know, another kind of white Aussie dude telling me what to think about this place. And I didn't really have the skin left for that anymore. I kind of wanted a different take. Uh, I was wrong. And uh, I think that I took that point that you pointed out earlier, how broadly he had been kind of integrated into our reading life and our cultural shorthand. He's on so many bookshelves. He's in every library, every bookshop. Um, And I mistook that for kind of an easier treatment or a less critical treatment of of who we are and where we come from. Arguably, the book that most leads to this perception that Kerry is uncritically reproducing the established versions of Australian history is true history of the Kelly gang, just because it's about Ned Kelly. But Kerry takes Kelly's famous derildery letter as his starting point. This is the letter that was written on Ned Kelly's behalf by his friend Joe Byrne to try and exonerate him in the public eye for the blame the newspapers were heaping on him. It's a defence of his actions, and it helps us understand him on his own terms. I want to focus now on yep. Kelly Gang, because that yes. was the first one that you read. Yes. And you talk a bit about the opening sentence. I'm going to ask you to read the opening sentence. Okay. I lost my own father at 12 years of age and know what it is to be raised on lies and silences, my dear daughter. You are presently too young to understand a word I write but this history is for you and will contain no single lie. May I burn in hell if I speak false. Ah, it's so good. It's pretty fabulous. But it's voice immediately, yes. like when people talk about that book, because Carrie made the decision to, uh, in what is often referred to as an act of ventriloquism, yes. take the voice in Kelly's derildery letter and yeah. make that the voice for the book. Yes. What grabbed you about that? So it presents uh, like optically uh, as just radical because it's unpunctuated and it just goes on and on and that whole page goes on and on. But that voice in that book is so powerful. It's so direct. You hear it speaking to you even though it's speaking, you know, at a remove to to a daughter. It just blew me away. You know, and that lack of punctuation, I mean, it's a radical move for a writer. It's a radical move for an editor or a house to kind of back that. But the tone of it, the emotional force of it, just kind of blasts from the page in the same way that the original kind of letter does. So, yeah, I, it's very rare that I have such a strong emotional reaction to the kind of technique. Mm. Um, and I think that's because it so beautifully matches the content. Once you got past that first sentence, was that just it, compulsive reading? Yeah. No, I was completely uh, on board. And speaking so frankly... Um, and almost kind of grittily about a history that we have polished into caricature. And so I found that um, so comfortable and welcoming to kind of speak frankly about something, um, and all under the guise of this very popular author that, you know, didn't, wouldn't, you wouldn't have expected something like that from him. How did it challenge that expectation of it being another white, middle-aged mm. male voice uh, lecturing you about Australian history. I mean, as far as a choice of subject matter goes, it's Kerry playing into that expectation. This yeah. is myth building. You know, what is it about the way he tackles that material that transcends 
some of that nonsense. So it's, it's a Trojan horse, the story, the use of it, all of the injustice that you know is there if you think about it for two seconds, but we don't think about in our myths and songs and all the rest of it. And so if we're talking about Commonwealth history, he really is at every turn making clear the, the lie in the name of the Commonwealth, that this was very much a lawless society in which some benefited by virtue of privilege, others benefited by virtue of force, and what happened to those left behind, and why, therefore, do we continue to kind of have this um, adulation, or some of us anyway, for Ned Kelly, who was in the end a um, you know cop killer and uh, and a thief. So obviously you had preconceptions about Kerry. What preconceptions did you have about Ned Kelly before you tackled this book? So for the for the longest time, it was just um, some vague understanding that there was a cowboy figure with a bucket uh, type armor on his head, and. We continue to kind of have this uh, binary view of Ned Kelly, uh, the man and or the myth. On one side, he's either, you know, the cop killing horse thief and good for nothing. And why would we uh, idolize an, an outlaw and a criminal? And on the other side, he really does stand for righteous defiance against unjust authority and I think, you know, when you look at where he came from as a child, when you look at the uh, self-interests of the media, the kind of structure of colonial justice and colonial politics, no one's hands were clean in that situation. His trial wasn't fair. His arrest and his uh, detainment weren't 100 percent kosher. And so there's much to be sympathetic with, even if you yourself have not had, you know, similar experiences of that degree. And I think that's why the kind of crew that's united in favor of Ned Kelly or still moved or emotionally interested or attracted to him um, has certain things in common. Do you think if Ned Kelly were around in 2023, he'd be an anti-vaxxer? He would be. He'd be waving that oh, I just kind of think he would. The whole sovereign citizen flag. thing, yes. like it's... It's true. It's no, true. I, I definitely feel it. He would. He would. He really would. Coming up after the break, Sarah Krasnerstein goes digging to find out what drove Peter Carey's fascination with Ned Kelly. That's next. Did you know you can support the artists you love and receive a tax deduction for donations over $2 through the Australian Cultural Fund? Last year, the Australian Cultural Fund facilitated over $11 million of donations to artists across the country. You can make a real difference to the work of Australian artists this end of financial year by donating through the Australian Cultural Fund. For more information, visit australianculturalfund.org.au. With award-winning news coverage and reviews, the Saturday paper is essential reading for everybody. For a limited time, subscribe to a year of our quality, independent journalism and you'll receive the Saturday Paper's stainless steel coffee cup made in collaboration with Fresco for free. Subscribe from just $2.10 a week. Simply visit thesaturdaypaper.com.au forward slash offer. The Saturday Paper. No hot takes. Welcome back. Sarah Krasnerstein has this way of excavating her subject matter. Whether it's about the nature of trauma or why we believe what we believe, or getting beneath stories about the isolated and the lost in our society, she digs and digs until she can tell you something new about something you thought you already understood. 
And in her new book on Peter Carey, she does it again, mining his history growing up in the Victorian town of Bacchus Marsh, reading through his archive, and retracing his life to make sense of his work. And of course, the obvious place to start when you're thinking about true history of the Kelly gang is the infamous Sidney Nolan portraits. Sarah wanted to understand how these amazing images of Ned Kelly served as an inspiration for Peter Carey's work. You know, I always um, am so interested in the, the genesis of the book and the way in which the material stays with you for often years before you start writing. And he had spoken about going to see the Nolan, the Kelly series, as a young man, just I think he was 20 or 21, and the impact that they had on him and going off and, you know, looking at the Geraldry letter after that, transcribing it and literally carrying it around in his pocket, um, which says a lot about the kind of a young dude he was. Nothing happened. He did not kind of use it to write the Bushranger novel that he had been kind of playing with for another 20 years. And then he's in uh, New York City in the Metropolitan Museum of Art. And there was the Nolan exhibit there. And he kind of had this moment of realizing that, you know, he could start writing this book or he still needed to write that book. And so the, kind of the the visual to the written is another interesting aspect. What was it about those Nolan images that most unlocked the story for him? So it's interesting to speculate. And I think he has said, you know, that he was so kind of moved by it that he progressively took all of his American mates to the museum and around the exhibition and was explaining to them why this bushranger occupies the kind of national collective emotional terrain usually occupied by statesmen or war heroes. I think what was going on was that he was kind of uh, finding his feet in a new culture. These powerful paintings were something from home that you could be so proud of. You know, Nolan, again, has a background similar to Carrie, coming from working-class parents, son of a tram driver, and he has painted these uh, images that are worthy of standing in of the world's finest art museums um, by themselves. And so I think there's that pride. There's looking at the receptivity of an American audience and knowing that, you know, yes, it is worthwhile. And then that he's explaining, above all, to himself why we have this kind of layered and complex, enduring relationship with Ned Kelly or the archetype of Ned Kelly. Yeah. I'm just curious about the writing of a book like this. You know, you you had the full trajectory from had him on the shelves but skeptical about him, read him and loved him, and suddenly you're a Kerry aficionado and you have to kind of find a way to sum up his work and his role in the Australian literary canon on the page. How do you approach that even from a research perspective? So um, I've learned now to kind of trust the panic and the real hesitation that I feel uh, in the face of certain things that don't make sense or that I find confusing or confronting. That's where the gold will be in the end, if I can just sit with that and kind of unpack it. So the terror with a, a, a book like this um, is how do you possibly say something new about uh, a writer so familiar and so well covered in the cultural mind? I try to never start with the secondary sources, what's been written. I try to go back, put myself as close to the material as I can. And in this instance, that meant 
going to physically have a look at Bacchus Marsh and see kind of if I could make out the shape of what the town looked like in the 40s or 50s. It's something that I'm always doing anyway in Melbourne, and I also do it to some degree in New York. I try to find the shape of the old city because I find the history fascinating anyway. Um, And I thought, you know, it might at least place me geographically where he was from, the light looks the same. There are certain, the shape of the landscape, you know, uh, will look the same. Everything else is different, but maybe there'll be something there that can function as some some way in. So that's how I started. You've got a beautiful line in your book about Kerry where you talk about our compensatory myths or lies or half-truths yes. as that being a kind of important bit of national and literary uh, kind of identity. Uh, that happens. Uh, it's obviously most explicit in Kerry's work in True History of the Kelly Gang, but I'm curious for you as a reader, having resisted him all this time and then discovered you loved this yes. book, do you remember where you went next in your Kerry reading? Yeah. So I did the short stories and then Oscar and Lucinda. There's something about going back to those early short stories and the kind of madness of them. Like he's yes. much more playful and anarchic early in his career, before he develops kind of discipline. Like, it, that plays there in all his work. But those early short stories are deliciously bonkers. They really, they're wild. And it's funny because he's a similar age to Helen Garner. They're writing those first big books at the same time. And they are like nothing else kind of um, at, at, in that in that mid-70s milieu. Um, and so there is a sense, and again, I think Nolan has this as well, that they are cultural orphans. They come from a tradition that's kind of English, an English literary tradition and those influences, but they have no local forebears. And so, yeah, these are wild stories. They're young men's stories. The women are particularly not well fleshed out, but, but they are so undeniably good and full of potential that, um, yeah, you just stick with them. And many of them contain the themes that he would later elaborate on at length in these, like, weighty tomes. Uh, Yeah. You talk about those themes that run through his work really beautifully. I'm sorry to read you to you, which is a cardinal (laughs) scene, but it's in front of me, so (laughs) it's... uh, He decants the enormous sweep of colonial history into finely observed domestic details, serving it up on a human scale. His themes... The violence pulsing just below the skin of good order, outsiders, outcasts and orphans, shame and its defences, betrayal, risk, denial and other contortions that the psyche performs to avoid threats to its preferred self-concept. And also something I could reduce to the words freedom or joy. Um, it's a really lovely accounting of what he comes back to again and again yeah. in his work. Um, and I'd like you just to reflect for a second on Another point you make about his themes, which is that he's an intensely political writer. Yes. And I think a lot of people miss that about Carey. In what way would you characterise him as political? Yeah, so he is kind of always writing very uh, directly about all of the things that we'd rather forget. So uh, the kind of original violence of colonisation, the way that that kind of br- brutality and the erasure of it has warped politics since. The fawning response to American foreign policy 
that has um, stayed with us since at least uh, the Whitlam years. And I would say kind of the the way in which that's fed into a particular uh, conception of the media in, in the later years, starting from the 90s. And it's interesting because something like amnesia, which, you know, looks at the, the complicity of, of the uh, media in certain forms of, of politics. Some people have pointed out that he's anticipated things that are now just, uh, you know, taken for granted. And he has a wicked sense of humor. I mean, it's just laugh out loud, funny a lot of the time, but you know, has a sense of the absurd for political purposes, which is very effective. In the early days of the internet, there was a website I really liked called The Fame Audit, which would take celebrities <laughs> and basically ask whether they were the right level of famous, whether they should be more famous or less famous. Oh, my gosh. Now that you're a great proselytizer for Peter Carey, <laughs> yes. and I imagine you just in bookshops <laughs> buying multiple copies to thrust in people's hands, do you think his status in the Australian literary firmament is appropriate? Do you think he's underestimated? Well, you know, he got there in the end, and who knows whether for the right reasons or not. But I think that many of the people who own him or claim to have read him or like him would be quite startled at finding, you know, what those books are actually saying. Oscar and Lucinda is, you know, radical in, you know, many of the kind of uh, challenges it poses to the original Sydney settlement. It would be quite discomforting, I think, to a lot of um, people that think he's just, uh, you know, a, a nice Aussie author. One of the rationales behind the Writers on Writers series is about influence and um, finds kind of writers reflecting on the ways in which other people's work shapes their approach to what they do. Have you uh, changed as a writer since becoming a Carey fan? Look, I, I uh, do not talk publicly much about this at all, but I continue to tinker with my fiction. And I have found the way he writes and the kind of volume of his output to be deeply inspiring. First, the way he writes at the sentence level is endlessly inspiring and kind of he shows the potential of influence because he is working often from 19th century influences and using them in novel ways. And so I think that that was, you know, eye-opening in many respects. And then the endless invention, the, you know, I think a writer at a certain point, we have these fears that everything has already been done uh, generally and both specifically. And how are you going to find something new to write about or to say about anything? And when you see a writer who has, you know, that high volume output and that quality of output, it's very reassuring. So, yeah, no, I've found his work to be heartening in those respects. We can't wait to read Sarah Krasnerstein's fiction. And when it's out, you'll hear about it here. Her book on Peter Carey is part of the Black Ink Writers on Writers series and is widely available now. And if you're in Melbourne, Sarah will also be appearing at the State Library of Victoria. That's happening on Friday the 1st of September at 6.30pm. And she's going to be discussing the book with friend of the show, Professor Tony Birch. Registrations are free, but capacity is limited. You need to head to the link in our show notes to book your tickets. And if you're listening to this after September 1st, you can't go. You've missed it. It's in the past. That's how time works. As a a. 7am listener, you value the story behind the headlines. 
That's why you should read Post, a free daily newsletter bringing you the top five news stories of the day, summarising each of their key points. Sign up at thesaturdaypaper.com.au slash newsletters. Before we go, in lieu of the normal what I've been reading this week, we thought in honour of Sarah's conversation about Peter Carey, I would just flag my favourite two Peter Carey books that I would steer you to once you're done with True History of the Kelly Gang. The first is Jack Maggs. It won the Miles Franklin Award and it's Carey's retelling of Great Expectations from the perspective of the convict. And then his early book of short stories, The Fat Man in History. It's an absolute cracker. You can find these books and all the others we've talked about today at your favourite local independent bookstore. Or if you want to listen to an audiobook, you can head to the Read This Reading Room on Apple Books at apple.co slash readthis. It's regularly updated with all the books we talk about every week. That's it for this week's show. If you enjoyed it, please tell your friends about it and rate and review us. It helps us a lot. Read This is produced by Clara Ames and edited by Sarah McVie. Original compositions are by Zoltan Fecho and the mixing is by Travis Evans. Thanks for listening. See you next week.